0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about dual circulation policy, the fancy new name for China's vision of the future of globalisation. As we speak, China's top political uh, meeting. The National People's Congress is meeting and making decisions about the future of Chinese policy. And one of the topics which they will be no doubt pondering is this whole idea of dual circulation, which was first announced during last year's May Politburo meeting. And we're going to go deep into what it means for China, what it means for globalization and the wider world, and what it means for Europe. And to help us make sense of this, I have an all-star cast back to the podcast. First up is Janka Ertl, who is the director of the Asia program at ECFR, as well as a senior policy fellow. And also coming back to the podcast is Andrew Small, who is not just an associate senior policy fellow at ECFR, but is also a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States of America. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining. Some people may not have come across this phrase of dual circulation before. Maybe we can start with that, Andrew. Tell us what it means and how it changes from the approach that China's had towards globalisation and its integration into the global economy over the last 20 years. I'm very glad to be back on the podcast. Um,
1: So dual circulation... um, Uh, Although there have been various debates uh, here in Europe about how far we should depend on on China's role in global supply chains, uh, particularly as a result of what's played out during the the pandemic, I think we've seen kind of the sharpest and fastest moves to build greater self-reliance actually coming from the Chinese side. Um, And that's a lot of what dual circulation is is really about. As you said in the introduction, we started hearing about this concept properly in May last year, even though it had been kind of some of the underlying thinking had had kind of kicked around before. Um, And initially, the sense was that this may just imply greater rebalancing towards domestic demand as a growth driver, and particularly in a context um, where the world economy was in the state that it was in. Uh, But it's it's since become clear that I think the thrust really goes beyond that. Uh, We've heard Xi Jinping since then on the the need to create fully domestic supply chains for national security reasons. Uh, And some of this really unusually explicit language from him on international firms' presence as a way of building leverage against other countries. Uh, There's this line that we we heard uh, last year about... Uh, we must tighten international production chain's dependence on China, forming a powerful countermeasure and deterrent capability against foreigners. Uh, and that's a very different concept of market access and the use of market access, even from the sort of emphasis on selective opening for the purposes of acquiring foreign technology or, or, or any of the other things that have been attempted before, which, which have been there much longer, uh, even though even that, I think, now takes on a different meaning given the advanced economic sectors that China is now uh, focusing on. Um, and, I mean, I think there's been an attitude at points in, in Europe until recently, and until some of the, the, the thinking around this concept was fleshed out, that this was really a US-China dynamic, that we don't want to decouple, we don't want to choose sides. Uh, but the idea that European firms and European economies would somehow be spared from exposure to some of these moves on China's part uh, was always very questionable. Um, and I think we're, we're starting now to see a bit more of a waking up to this uh, to, to this fact, um, the European Chamber and, and Merricks recently released a report saying that um, that European companies in in China are now reporting that the the redoubling of chinese' drive for self
0: reliance is quite different and more radical uh, than in the past I think the idea, Andrew, is that you have these two different types of uh, circulation, the two wings of the of the Chinese economy, internal circulation, which is china 's domestic consumption and production and technology and the external circulation or its links with the rest of the world. And and at the moment, um, there's a big rethink about how both of these things are meant to work together. Clearly, what
1: we've seen has been accelerated by some of the steps that the U.S. has has taken by way of particularly restrictions in the technology sphere, uh, especially with semiconductors. Um, And then I think also to a certain extent, and and some of the new instruments that we're seeing on on China's part, uh, a bit more of a fear, uh, particularly kind of last Summer, um, uh, about the measures that it might take in in the financial sphere as well, which was really the one set of instruments the Trump administration uh, didn't use in the way that the US has in the past with with Russia or or, or Iran, um, and particularly after some of the Hong Kong sanctions and the delistings of, of Chinese uh firms. Um, but I think you also, rather than this just being a kind of defensive set of questions, as you say, I mean, we've seen. Under Xi Jinping, some of the kind of more autarchic instrumentalization of the economy for national security purposes, um, we've seen more open use of some of the instruments of economic coercion in recent years, where uh, his predecessors were at least somewhat more judicious. Um, and we've been kind of familiar with some of the longer-standing elements of the decoupling efforts on on China's part um, as well, most obviously with. Uh, with uh, the major internet platforms, the Great Firewall, and all of that preceded anything that the US um, had had, had undertaken in in the last couple of years. Um, And and I think, as you can see, if you go down a long list of countries now that China is interacting with, uh, it's not about defensive dealings with them anymore on on, on many of these fronts. Um, It's made very clear that it wants the means to coerce them effectively on a much, much wider array of uh, issues than we've seen before. And I mean, in the past, we were dealing with So, Yanka,
0: you've been studying uh, how China thinks about its relations with the rest of the world for for a a long time. How would you situate the dual circulation debates um, in this kind of longer standing question about how much China relies on the rest of the world for exports versus domestic consumption and and how they think about globalisation?
2: So this is obviously not a development that is entirely new. This is not that Xi Jinping woke up and said, oh, wow, we need to strengthen domestic consumption because of COVID. This has been a topic that has been with the Chinese um, administration for a long time, that they're actually having a resource that is underdeveloped for years. Um, That is their domestic, their own market that they can leverage and that they can use a lot better if uh, spending actually starts to kick in on the domestic side. And so this has been a main and a key objective um, of, of the Chinese side for years to really move this forward this requires a certain degree of social reform it required a certain degree of kind of security to be created for Chinese people to actually spend their money but now the next step was to not just spend it on luxury goods from that are imported or that are produced by external companies but then to think through what that would actually mean to create local champions and to put that money um, that is actually being spent also to kind of re-inject that into the whole economics circulation that takes place at home. So to build domestic champions and to build domestic brands that are then being consumed in this massive market and thereby to not only create enormous economic growth and to create a stable middle class that is really good from like a stability perspective, but to also do that to insulate oneself from global shock. So this is also very much informed by the global financial crisis and by this whole idea of, well, wait a minute, if we're so integrated with the world, then that also means that this could happen have an enormously destabilizing effect for the kind of system that we're building. So this is kind of a, an insurance policy as well um, that is that the Chinese leadership has been pursuing for quite some time and is now just making a lot more explicit as well. And it's especially focused on the technology sector when you look at the dual circulation.
0: If we look at that shift which you're talking about, one of the most visible uh, changes was this policy which Xi Jinping introduced called Made in China 2025, which was one of the kind of central ways that he wanted to, to move up the, the value chain uh, and actually gradually start substituting China's reliance on external players for, in fact, you know, seeing um, new economies colonized by Chinese companies. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah. And I mean, it's particularly relevant because I sit here in Berlin and Made in China 2025 was kind of targeting these industries, what Germany is particularly good at and that Germany is particularly keen on um, and has kind of uh, populated the Chinese market for quite some time. So we're looking at the chemical industry. We're looking at the kind of the car industry. We're looking at advanced manufacturing industry. These are all sectors within which there was this kind of targeted boost of spending, um, of investing in research and development, of in the kind of the capital from the early on level. So in education, mint education, um, something that was really like a targeted government approach to be champions and to build champions in these particular sectors. Now, that obviously exerts a certain degree of pressure on the economy. um, And it exerts obviously also pressure on external players that are already present in the market. This kind of pressure has Um, created a situation where um, European companies or Western companies in general feel that they're kind of being squeezed out of the market just due to the size and the kind of competitive advantage that Chinese companies can build.
0: So, Andrew, the most visible area where that's already happened, which has shocked a lot of Europeans, is, is the solar industry, where Europeans at one point thought that they were global market leaders and that they had the technologies of the future. And then barely uh, before they'd started to take advantage of it, they found that the market was turned into a kind of natural Chinese monopoly. How did that happen? I mean, I think that was, in some respects, one of the first areas of kind of red
1: flag for the fact that this was not just going to be a gradual moving up the value chain that you were going to have, um, particularly post the financial crisis. um, A number of these sectors that were, uh, prioritized that were actually more about leapfrogging into uh, areas that were supposed to be um, specific focal points for Europe's own economic future, um, and we saw from the mid 2000s but then accelerating after the financial crisis, and 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 again even before you get into some of the uh, the the Made in China twenty twenty five and and some of the other plans. Um, just this significant um, refocusing of industrial policy efforts behind um, a number of these uh, advanced sectors. Um, And the the sense on the solar technology front, and and the same was there on telecoms as well, uh, from from the European Commission, was that these these needed to be kind of exemplary cases that were... That were brought. Um, uh, you, you needed to bring a couple of big cases to to show that um, the sorts of subsidies that we were already seeing in in these sectors, um, which which were hitting European firms very substantially already, uh, that this was not something that we we wanted to see China replicate across the board. Um, and this really got pretty much kind of kneecapped internally at the time. And 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 this was several this was several years ago now. This is. Um, the mid 2010s that, that this was being um, attempted. And I think that's the the kind of the, the the sense of warning that people have about what might play out with, with a number of these other uh, industries um, as, as, as well, that this is not, we're not in, in the early 2000s, when we had what was kind of, has been looked back on as this kind of China shock after WTO accession. I think there was a lot of Played out with other firms, you know, if it was textiles or steel or something like that, where this was all seen as just the sort of price of globalization and these were the losers of globalization and it was just about moving up the value chain. Um, and I think the sense increasingly has, has been precisely that um, China is, is, is not just going to um, go through the sort of economic evolution that a number of other um, developing economies have. Um, they are going to be targeting these advanced sectors with prodigious levels of subsidies. I, I think the Made in China um, 2025 subsidies. One recent book described it as the greatest single commitment of government resources to an industrial policy objective uh, in history. So
0: huge subsidies going in, an attempt to bring Chinese citizens uh, who've been active in other countries back home so that they can repatriate some of this technology. Um, They're also... Uh, encouragements to Chinese companies to go out and buy technology, which they don't want themselves, which creates a whole series of questions about uh, Chinese investment in different places. Do you want to talk a bit about that, uh, Yanka?
2: Yeah, I think this has been a debate that we've been having, especially here in Europe for quite some time, especially in the mid-2010s. We've had the, the biggest conversations around Chinese acquisitions. The big wave of Chinese investments in Europe is over. Um, we're not we're seeing a decline in investment, but we're seeing much more targeted investments now. And this is something um, that is especially prevalent in the technology sector, where there's certain pockets of excellence where Chinese investments is going um, to acquire technologies that are still needed to kind of complete the portfolio for Chinese companies and to make them competitive and to make them um, kind of more uh, less vulnerable to being cut off from access through other players. And that's something that is a dynamic that that we can observe across Europe um, and it's uh, something that the European Commission is now trying to target with the FDI screening um, regulation that we have that is kind of uh, now being turned into national regulation on various levels and in various member states. This is certainly something that has caught the attention but we haven't really been able to find the tools yet to deal with it because technology transfer does not only happen like that but it also happens through localization and localization is a big trend that we're now seeing with dual circulation as well coming back in uh, into this conversation there. So, these
0: are, these are really important terms, but they're a bit technical for people who aren't studying the things uh, properly. So, localization means bringing in laws, which means that any. Uh, do you want to explain what it means? It's a way of trapping intellectual property in China.
2: Trapping intellectual property, but also just making people.
0: And data as well, I imagine.
2: Data as well, but also just physical companies, just making people produce in China. Um, and making them kind of have their companies in China building their factories there, localizing their supply chains there because that kind of binds them and locks them in into the market. But it also creates kind of this this uh, the, the, the level a greater level of control over what is going on. Um and that's
0: and it means that they have to follow Chinese standards. So on the data front, it means they have to give the Chinese government access to everything that they're doing, but also uh, if they're introducing because China's increasingly, and this is maybe part of the external circulation, which we'll talk about a bit later, but it is increasingly bringing, using its own standards rather than just accepting Western standards for everything.
2: Yeah. And if you I mean, if you're a big multinational company, then you just build another factory in China. But if you're a small, medium sized enterprise and normally, um, you know, you produce in Germany or you produce in somewhere else in Europe, then that's actually difficult to do. And it's a lot harder to then make these requirements work for you and then you lose markets.
0: Okay, so. I want to talk a bit more about what it means for companies in a bit and how we should respond to it. But just to complete the picture, we've been talking about the internal circulation side of dual circulation, which is basically this attempt to make China more self-sufficient, less blackmailable by the rest of the world, less reliant on... Exports, which means that it is more resilient if there are financial crises like what we saw in two thousand and eight. But it's also building all these technological areas where it can actually rely on itself rather than having to to uh, import things or, or, or export profits to to companies like Apple, um, which has been a long running uh, source of frustration for the Chinese system. The other side of this. And some people have described this a bit like a penny farthing that you have the internal circulation, which is the big wheel at the front, and then the external circulation, which is the links to the rest of the world. China reinvented its economy through its links to the rest of the world, not just by importing lots of technology, but also export-led growth was the absolute center of, of the uh, model of, globalized, of of Chinese economic policy in the, in the 90s and early years of this century. Um, but that's now kind of, Changing both because it's becoming less important, but also because China is increasingly seeing globalization as something which can have a Chinese face rather than an American face. Andrew, do you want to talk a bit about that? Because I suppose the the key idea for that is less "Made in China 2025," but it's more the idea of the Belt and Road Initiative or what started as one Belt, one Road. Well, I mean,
1: the Belt and Road Initiative is 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 still in some ways a a more limited part of of, of what this amounts to. Um, I mean, certainly. You know, the 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 scale of, of what China was initially attempting with 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 the Belt and Road um from twenty thirteen um on uh, the construction of kind of huge networks of ports pipelines rail networks um across initially Eurasia and then virtually every um region of the world um I mean this the uh, very heavily kind of focused on some combination of Um, replicating the Chinese model outside its borders, replicating the elements of Chinese developmental takeoff, um, and fulfilling a set of gaps that countries felt they really had, where there has been identified a huge infrastructure deficit, particularly in Asia, and China, to some extent, was able to swing in and and, and fulfill that need. Um, And of course, this has then been refined over time into something um, that is even more focused on um, you know, digital Silk Road, um, the capacity for China to set standards in third countries, um, a whole series of other areas that in its initial fuzzier stages hadn't necessarily been spelled out. Um, but, I mean, the scale of, I mean, we've obviously seen the spending on, on, on that come down uh, significantly as it's run into more problems. Um, and a lot of the power that China still has um. Uh, even more so than the capacity to build um, you know, energy projects in third countries and things like that, which is still difficult and poses a lot of liabilities and, and where China's run into a lot of headaches um, over recent years, whether it's Venezuela or Sri Lanka or a number of other instances, um, whereas the Chinese market has still retained um, a huge amount of its power. Countries have clearly and companies um, have, uh, particularly during periods of economic weakness, have actually grown more dependent on, on the Chinese uh, market in, in, in various ways in ways that um, I think we've started to see greater efforts to uh, start to, whether it's weaponize or use in in, in different ways. And I I think that rather than uh, some of the BRI efforts are are still the most potent tool that
0: China really has. Maybe we can start to um, unpack a bit further some of the the different challenges that that this poses, Yanka, the way that China's thinking in more assertive terms about, about these links. So it's both the fact that now I think there are 100, over 120 companies in the world that trade more with China than anyone else, which means that they're kind of dependent. There are the um, questions about Chinese standards which are being exported um, to many countries. Um, we've seen that with with 5G and and Huawei, which we've debated a few times on this podcast uh, in the past. But I suppose there are also questions about the Chinese model of subsidies being used against Europeans in all of these markets because in in the past the big play which Europeans and others were making was that by opening our markets to China eventually the Chinese market which was huge and growing would be open to European companies. What we've discussed on internal circulation shows that maybe that's not going to work out quite as people hoped Um, but in the future you could also see China using its subsidies, not just to shut Europeans out of the Chinese market, but out of uh, almost every other market in the world as it builds these important economic relationships with other players.
2: Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of a, um, quite a stretch to say that in the future, we might be able to see that. We are already seeing that, how Chinese companies are building enormous power at home. Um, are becoming very strong players uh, through economies of scale at home um, because they have uh, the potential to really improve their product as well, and then are entering global markets um, with a set of kind of financial backing um, that other companies do not have and are then quickly able to dominate those markets. And I think the telecom sector has been a fantastic example in that regard, um, how quickly Chinese companies can gain size and grab market shares because they are able to sell below market price or to sell uh, for no money at all um, in some instances when this is necessary to, to then um, grab market shares. A lot of this has happened um, because of actual competitiveness of the product because Chinese uh, products have kind of been at good products at a cheap price. Um, But we always have to ask the question where that cheap price comes from um, and how then formerly competitive industries are being squeezed, diminished and are losing market shares. And this is something that is of great concern to even those companies that have held the largest share of the kind of had had the biggest piece of the pie so far in the Chinese market. So even the big German companies are growing increasingly wary that the kind of good days, the golden days of the China business, are over.
0: So what this all amounts to is a is a new kind of China shock from the one which we talked about in the past. It's one which doesn't just affect, uh, you know, old fashioned manufacturing in in sunset industries. As we discussed, it, it now affects the most important industries in the world. But it's also not just something which is about what happens in our home market and in China, but it is also playing out in every single market in the world. Um, I want to come in more detail to what Europeans can and should do about it. But before we do that, the other important part of the picture, which is something you mentioned at the beginning, Andrew, is, is the US, because the rising uh, political awareness of the China threat in, in Washington is partly being provoked by uh, Xi Jinping's strategies and is also reinforcing some of the things that Xi Jinping is doing. Um, but the t- playing off against each other creates a different world for for Europeans to think about when they think about globalization. Do you want to talk a bit about how the Americans are reading um, this new China shock and what they're doing to respond to it?
1: We're in a different zone, actually, with with the Biden administration uh, now. Um, the Trump administration, in theory, was was uh, the one that was supposed to be pursuing this sort of radical agenda on, on China, and, and arguably on on some of what it was attempting on the technology side, it, it was. Um, but on, on the classic trade issues, it was often just using tariffs to pursue some very traditional objectives, um, market access, reform, uh, and then some of the sort of interest in Trump's interest, at least in bilateral purchases to, to reduce the deficit, um, even if that didn't actually happen. Um, but I mean, apart from the purchases, it was really the old trade agenda with a bit more willingness to uh, throw the US weight around. I I think the Biden approach already seems to start from a somewhat different premise that that does go back to some of these questions around um, the rebalancing of of China's own approach now. Um, If we're dealing with a China that openly wants to weaponize dependency um, and has been doing so, and that is now kind of full steam ahead towards self-reliance and domestic supply chains and that's increasingly set on the securitization um, of its economic strategy under Xi Jinping, then I think the question that's being posed now is why should deepening access for, for US firms be the priority Um, And why should we continue to pretend that there's going to be a reform agenda or that we can push a reform agenda that's going to comport with U.S. economic interests? Um, And I think that's starting to translate into some very different priorities. Um, And we've seen that just in in recent weeks um, in some of what's already in in motion, some of what's being talked about, whether it's uh, U.S. industrial policy plans, the measures that we've seen announced on supply chains um, and some of these proposals for technology alliances and building allied capacities. Uh, I think this is just moving towards something that's not a China-driven economic policy that is based on the bilateral relationship or phase two tra- trade deals. Um, it's focused much more on US and partner capabilities to compete. It's focused exactly as you were talking about on third markets and how to compete more effectively there with China. Um, and then how to defend US economic interests more effectively, where these are, I think, decreasingly seen as being... Um, coterminous with with US multinationals' interest in the Chinese market. Um and I mean as it's not just that the European approach isn't in the same place as, as where the US is on on this. Um I, I think arguably and I, I know Yanko will now say a bit more about this. I mean, we are still in kind of a path dependency that says that we want to deepen and expand our engagement with the Chinese market, push reform and, and, and all of the things that were there before, even as we're seeing a lot of these warning flags uh, explaining, I mean, even from Xi Jinping personally, uh, that there's no chance of getting reform in the way that we want it um, and that certain forms of our exposure to the Chinese market uh, will be used against us in very different ways from the way that they were before.
0: So, Janka, why don't you tell us where Europeans are at in terms of both their understanding of this new world that we've been describing, uh, but also how they uh, are plugging into these big changes in the American debate?
2: Yeah, I think we're there when it comes to the analysis of the problem to a degree, but the paradigm shift in the heads that kind of needs to take place around this hasn't fully materialized yet. And I think we've seen that around the comprehensive agreement on investment, which is very much still kind of along the traditional lines of how we've been doing policy before, how we've been trying to do more business with China, to be just more present in China, to be part of kind of the Chinese economic model, whereas probably the tendency needs to be towards greater diversification, less risk accumulation in the Chinese market, less exposure to the Chinese market, and a focus on building Allied capacity or capacity in general to compete in different markets and to build different markets and to kind of ease the balance um, and to reduce China's potential to leverage its own economic size and to use its own market. We do underestimate, I think, sometimes in Europe that there is a huge capacity um, for building other markets outside of China, um, and we have to kind of reshift political focus to that and invest more political energy also towards our partners in the Indo-Pacific, an enormous growth region, um, but also to look towards Africa, um, to look towards kind of how we can work with the United States, with Japan, building research and development partnerships, um, working on technology alliances. I think this is the kind of future way where Europe needs to move, but that is still a bit of a ways away in the heads of European policymakers. I think we still have kind of some, some, uh, some time to go until that shift can really take place. Okay. So, Andrew, if you think about what this
0: means in practice for big European companies that are hoping to have their cake and eat it and not choose between the Chinese and American markets, um, how does that Sort of play out. Is it still possible to to imagine doing that?
1: I mean, it's it's evidently becoming harder. I, I think if you if you spoke to business associations uh, a couple of years ago, even um, about how what sort of plans they were making for 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 some of these developments uh, before some of this had really hit harder on the us side and before what we were seeing on, on the chinese side um, i think there was still a hope that it would be possible to sort of uh, navigate in 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 a kind of the, the in a level of flux in, in between this i think you're starting to see a lot more of an approach that's that's looking at a kind of um, china centric set, set up and a um, and a us centric but but really almost the rest of the world set up. Um, the, the China framework is still not something that has, has reached out to the same degree beyond its its borders. Um, but when you're looking now at kind of supply chains, for instance, um, do you need to build parallel supply chains um, in order to deal with some of the restrictions that we're now seeing both on the US and, and, and the Chinese um, part? Um, the, these are the sorts of things, though, of course, that, that larger companies can contemplate. Uh, smaller companies that are, are, are going to face more acute um, choices than that. Um, and, and maybe Janka can say a little bit about how that's playing out, particularly on, 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 on the German side, where, I mean, a, a lot of the, the difference in, in how these choices are being thought about, versus the, the large firms versus the Mittelstand, is, is, is precisely where some of this is at the most acute.
0: Janka.
2: Yeah, I do think that that's for, for Germany. It is particularly relevant at the moment, because the exposure out of all the European countries, um, German companies are much more exposed because much more invested in the Chinese market. The trade between China and Germany is just much larger than for most of the other European member states. So it is quite relevant where Germany kind of comes out on all of these questions. And you see that um, the big companies are are kind of doubling down after the comprehensive agreement on investment, reinvesting, um, kind of making sure that they have a bigger share still in the Chinese market. But you see also the same degree of kind of hesitance among small and medium-sized enterprises um, that are worried about losing their IP, that are worried about losing um, their their share um, of the global market where they are hidden champions. So I think this kind of um, it simultaneously is, is for the German economy quite a stretch um, to do both things, to remain present in the Chinese market because that's the kind of post-COVID pandemic recovery logic, but to at the same time incident for some of the um, challenges that it poses and I think it's quite relevant that that um, some of the senior leaders have come out, senior economic leaders have come out and say, basically, European joint action will determine Europe's fate along this, because there is an understanding that Germany is way too small to take on the China challenge by itself. Um, so it will need European unity or European joint action and European capacity to act here. Um, but this will also require a broader coalition. And that's something that is sinking in in business leaders' minds as well
0: so we have
2: run out of time
0: from this podcast but i think it's been a fascinating discussion about how quite big things are changing in terms of how china thinks about its economic future and what that means for the world i want to get the two of you back very soon to talk about what we can do about it which we only scratched the surface on in our discussion today uh, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Andrew? The book I quoted from, um, which is handily available for
1: free, "The Rise of China's Industrial Policy, um, 1978 to 2020" um, by Barry Norton, um, is a good single-volume look at um, almost everything that has been attempted by by China in this regard since reform and opening, um, pulling it through right pretty much to the to the present day. Um, I think it's by one of the best outside analysts on, on, on the Chinese economy. Uh, there are some of the kind of political dimensions of, of these choices that are being made that he doesn't necessarily go into um, quite as much, but it's a really excellent overview. And you can just download the book for, for, for free if you Google it.
2: I would like to suggest an article here, um, and that's namely the, the interview that I was referring to earlier as well. Um, so the Handelsblatt has had an interview with Joe Keiser, um, who's not only um, working for Siemens, but also um, for the chairman of the Asia-Pacific um, Association of the German Industry, as as an interview with Dana Heide, um, where he goes into quite some detail on what Europe needs to do to compete with China. And I think that's kind of mandatory reading for everyone who wants to look into these issues in greater detail.
0: If you enjoy listening to this podcast, it'd be great if you could let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media feed or ours and ideally giving us a lovely review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to download us on. But for now, from Andrew Small, Janka Ertl and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Chris Eisberger. Thank you.